3: Welcome to episode number seven of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you are all safe and well. Well, we are getting closer to spring and people are starting to get vaccinated, so hopefully we will be out there playing some shows real soon. I am very excited to bring you our featured conversation today with keyboardist Jeff Commenti. Jeff's been a part of pretty much every Dead-related offshoot for the past 20-plus years, and he definitely brings a unique perspective to the podcast. Also with us today is Scott Cooper of the China Cats, based in Santa Cruz, California. And seeing how Jeff is also in the Bay Area, it's kind of a West Coast show today. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment and ask you to check out our Patreon subscriber site and consider a monthly subscription for access to bonus content, including unedited interviews and outtakes, expanded video versions of the Black Music Moment and Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown, uh, some videos of me from home and on the road, community gatherings... Some cool swag and some other ways to further engage with me and support the podcast. Please check it out at www.patreon.com forward slash the plays. If you'd like to make a one time contribution, please visit paypal.me forward slash the music plays. The Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs technology-driven solutions, and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music moments are attempt at chronicling the profound influence of Black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. This week, we take a moment to honor the one-man band, Jesse Fuller. Fuller was born in 1896 in Jonesboro, Georgia. He had a rough childhood, but was playing guitar by the time he was 10 years old. He relocated to Oakland, California in the 20s and worked various jobs for the Southern Pacific Railroad for many years. Although he'd written songs and was busking, it actually wasn't until the early 1950s that he began to consider the possibility of making a living as a musician. He was never able to find reliable musicians to work with, so he just went out on his own and became a one-man band, playing everything including guitar, kazoo, hi-hats, and an instrument he developed that allowed him to play bass and percussion with one foot. He recorded several albums, and numerous songs of his were popularized by other artists. His most popular tunes, probably San Francisco Bay Blues, Uh, most well-known probably by Eric Clapton, but also recorded by Jim Croce, Hot Tuna, uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and many others. He had other tunes that were recorded by Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash as well. The Dead performed two of Fuller's tunes. One was the staple of the repertoire It on Down the Line, and the other, which we will hear today, is the much-loved rarity The Monkey and the Engineer. Fuller recorded it in 1961, and it was played by the early Dead incarnation, Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, in 64. You know, the Dead performed it 32 times, not very much at all. Uh, mostly acoustic sets in 69 and 70, and then uh, in 80 and 81, in you know, those three set shows they did with the first set acoustic. There is an electric version with Bob Dylan from February of 1989. I, I just love the, the groove and the phrasing on this. It's, it's just a little different than the Dead's version, but you can certainly hear the similarities. So here is Jesse Fuller and the original recording of The Monkey and The Engineer.
4: Once upon a time there was an engineer He drove a locomotive so far in there Coming by a monkey that sat on the stool Watching everything that the engineer moved One day the engineer wanted to bite the eat. He left the monkey sitting on the driver's seat The monkey pulled the throttle locomotive Jumped the gun and made 90 miles an hour on the main line Walk coming down the line, big locomotive number nine and nine, and left the engineer with a worried mind. Engineer began to call the spatcher on the phone, Tell him all about the locomotive was gone. Get on the wire and the spatcher right, called the monkey, got the main line, so up. <laughs> The operator got the message in time. there's a northbound limit on the same main line. Oop the switch, we're gonna let him in the hole. Cause the monkey got the locomotive on the country. Wow, wah! Wow, why quack coming down the line? They be locomotive number nine and nine left it in the, engineer with the <laughs>
3: I just love the way that goes. It just feels so good. It's so happy. Uh, You can hear the whole thing and learn a lot more about Jesse Fuller over at the Patreon site uh, if you want to check it out. And now the uh, Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown with Brad Sarno is brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions. Producing the finest musical instrument audio gear, designed and hand-built in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003. And Blue Jade Audio Mastering, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. Today, uh, Brad and I kind of wrap up our discussions we've been having in the last few episodes about micing. We're going to talk about how you deal with the setting of an acoustic show. All right. Welcome back, Brad. How are you this week? Doing pretty good, Rob. All right. I'm so glad to have you. I appreciate you taking the time each week. Um, Way back when we first started doing these... Where we started was with uh, mic techniques, you know, and it it primarily focused on, you know, how to mic in a concert setting, which is an electric setup. But what about when you're doing an acoustic setup, like like the Radio City shows in 1980? Um, I know firsthand from our band dealing with it, micing acoustic instruments is completely different. And, you know, it can be really, really problematic, especially with guitars. Are there any special techniques that go into keeping the feedback away?
1: Yeah, you know, acoustic amplification is is one of the most difficult things. It's easier if you have a silent audience because you don't have to be as loud. You don't have to compete. Uh, but as soon as you, if you put a mic on an acoustic, by the time you get it loud enough, that mic is going to be feeding back, especially in the low end. And so um, I love the, the Grateful Dead stuff from that Radio City era because they did it. You know, that, that was the high-end pro approach. Um, and the trick is you combine a pickup with a microphone. And the problem with the pickups, although they've gotten a lot better in recent years, but they, they tend to sound kind of harsh in the treble. But they do good bass and they don't feed back in the bass. So what they like to do is use the pickup for the low end of the sound. Um, and then you, you dump all the highs out of that signal. And then you use a microphone to catch the nice, natural, crispy highs of the acoustic, but you dump all the lows out of the mic so it won't feed back. And then you blend those two really well and you get a good sound. Obviously, being the dead with Dan Healy and the talent and gear they had, they, that still to this day is some of the best sounding live acoustic guitars You'll ever hear
3: Rob and Jeff, like when we do acoustic shows, it always comes up, you know, it's cause the feedback with the volume thing, Rob and Jeff both have like these rubber caps that they put over the sound hole. Right. What does that do?
1: Well, that when you do that, you can't really mic the guitar. Cause you're sort of killing the acoustic sound of the guitar, but by closing the sound hole, you prevent bass feedback and it allows you to use a pickup and turn it up pretty loud without a feedback problem.
3: So they're probably using that when we don't use a mic, and they're just running the guitar near the pickup, and that's what right. that's where we're getting all the signal from that
1: exactly. And you know, in out of practicality, the world really has migrated to just using a pickup for the most part, and putting those feedback busters in the sound holes. EQ solves everything. Well, what's crazy is even yeah, though the sound man doesn't want you to use it. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, what, what Dan Healy's rule? What do you say? EQ is your enemy. Avoid it. Right. Only use it when you have to, you know. But, but that's an
3: instance when you would have to.
1: Kind of. But what's what's interesting about the new tech is it uses this um, – it's a digital technology called impulse response um, where it's you're actually taking a signal like from the pickups and this very complex and intelligent algorithm that has analyzed real acoustic instruments knows how to convert that into something that sounds like um, – The real instrument. And so it's really, really advanced digital computer technology that's giving us really nice, warm, natural acoustic guitar tones these days.
3: That's great. So it's getting it's getting easier to do it in theory than it used to be.
1: Much, much easier. Yeah.
3: That's great, man. You know, I I love when we play the acoustic shows. You know, it's it's a different a different approach to the music. It's first of all, it's a lot quieter, which is always really nice but uh every sound check we deal with all that stuff
1: yeah it's it's the nature of the visa i mean acoustic it's a big hollow box it's you know all the sound on stage is gonna want to make it feedback and so right. fighting the feedback without killing the tone is really the trick
3: right on yeah. well you know this was a good one because i learned a lot today you know uh, i hope you all out there are learning something but it's nice when i can learn something along the way so uh as always my friend thank you very much for being here and uh Stay safe and well, and we will talk again very soon. Sounds good, Rob. Good talking to you. All right. Take care, Brad. See you. Today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going, or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help. www.authenticity.coach. We're uh, we're going to stay out in the Bay Area and talk now to Scott Cooper of the China Cats, who are based out of Santa Cruz, California. Okay, I'm here with Scott Cooper from the China Cats out of Santa Cruz, California. How are you today, friend? Kicking ass. Excellent, man. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Likewise, Rob. The China Cats, Santa Cruz, California. Uh, brief history. When did y'all form?
0: Started out as a band called Donies, spelled D O U G H K N E E S. Donies. Donies. Uh, about 13 years ago. Um, and then uh, changed their name to the China Cats about 11 years, 12, 11, 12 years ago. And then uh, about, yeah, I guess it would be 10 years and 11 years in, in March, we got the current lineup, which has been together consistently for the last 10, 11 years. Wow, that's fantastic.
3: And what, what's the instrumentation that you have?
0: Uh, classic dead lineup, two guitars,
3: bass, keyboards, and one drummer. One drummer. Um, why not two drummers?
0: We have done some gigs with two drummers. Um, money and stage are the main <laughs> reasons.
3: Stage comes into play a lot, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Pre-pandemic, I guess, would be the where you'd have to answer this question from. How often would you all be playing if it was normal times right now?
0: Well, uh our our Jerry, Matt Hartle, he's got a residency at a local club so he that plays every Sunday. Um and then he uses different players. So we all cycle through that Sunday thing with Matt. Um but as a band we generally pay play
3: uh, you know, three or four times a month. When you're out as the China Cats, are you playing all over Northern California or just the Santa Cruz area predominantly? We
0: uh we go from uh, San Luis Obispo is about how far south we go. We've been up to uh, um, Humboldt County and east to uh, uh, Truckee and Tahoe. So that's, that's a pretty good
3: chunk of Northern California, right there.
0: Yeah, it's mostly, I guess, yeah, Northern and Central California.
3: When when you guys take the stage and you're playing this music as a band, I'm talking right now. Do you all take a specific approach to interpreting the music and performing it?
0: Uh. Yes and no. Um, Yes, each one of us does individually. Um, And uh, I think every guy in the band would probably answer that a different way. Um, So I I try to do things that Bob would do, not necessarily things that Bob did do. Um, Although, you know, uh, there's riffs that I, I mean, I've studied all my Bobby riffs that I could pull them out at any point in time, but Am I thinking Bob did this riff in this song at this moment? Uh, sometimes, but not always. Um, and, you know, everyone, every guy in the band has a different attitude about, do we do JGB stuff? Can we do Bob's, you know, Rat Dog stuff or Bobby and the Midnight stuff? Can we do Old In The Way material? Uh, I say yes. I'm all, I'm all open for everything. Uh, yeah. other, other guys in the band are like, no, it's straight Grateful Dead because... We all have our side projects, and when people want to hear dead and
3: dead only, they know to come to the China Cats. That's really interesting because I would think if you want to hear dead, you would also equate that to say, especially to the Garcia band catalog. That's how I personally feel, but not everyone in the band feels that way. Interesting. That's really interesting. Uh, I know on the side, besides the China Cats, you also write music, and you've put out quite a few albums and some singles over the years. Uh would you say that Hunter and Barlow or the Grateful Dead in any other way has influenced your songwriting?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, in, every, in every aspect. Um, I mean, there's a lot of my tunes that don't sound anything like the dead. But I, you know, I'm, I'm only conscious of it during the writing process in the sense, I guess in two ways. One is like, is each line going to be a gem unto itself the way Hunter's lines are? Uh, and then I also try to write songs consciously like, okay, where's the jam going to happen and how's the jam going to, going to, you know, evolve from this, these chord changes. So those are the two main ways that come to mind.
3: Tell me about uh, your community out there. You know, I know you're from St. Louis like I am and you know what, what it's like here with Jake's leg and whatnot. What about your Grateful Dead community out there? I would assume there's some longtime regulars, people you see at every show.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's an understatement. Um, Yeah. I mean, particularly, well, the China cats have had a great thing going for for a long time here. Um, And yeah, there's a lot of the same faces, but there's, uh, you know, Santa Cruz bleeds into the Bay Area. So there are people who come from the Bay Area, from the East Bay or North Bay. There's some people come from three hours down in San Luis Obispo who come to our gigs. And then when we play at like Terrapin or Ashkenaz or somewhere else in the Bay Area, um, you start to see the same familiar faces there too. So there's a lot of crossover between Santa Cruz and the Bay Area and all central California, really.
3: What do you think it is about this music that creates that, that brings this subculture together like that?
1: Well,
0: you know, I think the obvious first answer is the sense of community. Um, There's a sense of tradition. Or in history, that people know what it's brought in the past and expect it to bring that again. Um, and then there's the dancing. Uh, I know a lot of people who are in it just for the dancing, and whether we pull out a song that, quickly, my other band, Rosebud, does about 60% dead and 40% other stuff. Um, so when Rosebud, when we're playing dead tunes and, and people are dancing, if we pull out, something else that the dead never did, but it's in that style. Um, As long as people dance to it, they're into it. Um, And uh, so I think there's, I think the dancing has a lot to do with it.
3: Right on. I I love that the fact that you are able to, to see the same people over and over again, but I'm sure at the same time, you're probably turning on new people to the music as well.
0: Yeah, like every gig, I I'm kind of amazed, and I say to Roger Seidman, the bass player, like, who's that? I've never seen that those people before. Which is, it's a nice nice thing to to know that. I mean, after 12 years playing in a small town, that there's still new people coming to our gigs.
3: That's great. Well, you're helping keep the flame alive for a lot of deadheads out there, and turning on new people to this great music and I thank you for that and I thank you for your time today man I appreciate you taking it and spending some time and letting us know a little bit about how it works out there in Santa Cruz
0: right on thanks
3: Rob my pleasure that's Scott Cooper from the band China Cats out of Santa Cruz, California take care my friend you too if you like what you're hearing today please head over to our subscriber site at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays, and consider a monthly subscription for access to bonus content including video features, outtakes, unedited interviews, some cool swag, some community hangs, and other ways to further engage with me and support the podcast. www.patreon.com forward slash plays. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, please visit paypal.me forward slash plays. as we get this show rolling. Any support is much appreciated. Thank you. Today's feature conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, Grateful Sweats is your first stop for Subtle Dead Designs. Check them out at etsy.com shop gratefulsweats Grateful Sweats and see for yourself. Designs only other heads will get. When you're wearing the state of Tennessee with Jet in it and someone says nice shirt, you know they get it and they're on the bus. A Subtle Dead cap makes its point and no one does sweats like Grateful Sweats. Hoodies, sweatpants, joggers, tees, and much more. Subtle Dead Designs at etsy.com shop gratefulsweats Grateful Sweats. I'm so happy to have Jeff Kameni here as my featured guest today. Jeff's been part of the Grateful Dead scene since he joined Rat Dog in ninety seven and has pretty much been associated with every group that's been out there since. The other ones, the dead, further fairly well, and of course now Dead and Company. Uh, this was a fun interview. I really enjoyed spending some time with Jeff. So let's get right to it. Hey, how are you, Jeff? Doing good, Rob. How you doing? I'm good, man. It's been too long since we talked. It's good to talk to you, buddy. It's been a while.
2: Yeah. How are you? What's a, going on? Happy New Year to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank so hopefully you. Hopefully it's uh, we're off to a better one here.
3: See, well. We're off to a good start. I think anyway, you know, well
2: do what we can do.
3: Yep. Yep. What have you been doing? You know, you're, you're, you're been in, you've been in San Francisco the whole time, right? Yes. How are you spending your time? What
2: are you doing to stay busy? Uh, I mean, obviously there's just home stuff dealing with that and, um, you know, making my runs to, uh, Essential runs to Costco, which I'm probably gonna do two of them after uh, we get off this today. <laughs> <So, laughs> i time, time to restock, but um, you know, just working here at home in my little uh, studio room, just trying to work on stuff for myself, and doing some you know periodic sessions with Wolf Brothers there, and a uh, little bit of golfing too. It's not that was just, that, you know that was gonna normal. be my next.
3: That was my next question for you. For those of you that don't know, Jeff's like me. He's a golf junkie. Um, too cold. What's too cold?
2: Well, I'm a California guy, so you can <laughs> put that in perspective. <laughs> Come on, man. What's too cold? I think if, you know, below 50 is kind of starting Uh-oh. to push my limits there.
3: And see, I'm at the point now where I'm looking at the weather and going, all right, it's going to be 43 on Thursday. I can go yeah, play. Yeah, you,
2: you might, I might get out there. I'll, maybe I'll throw in some rain pants and something and bundle up. But it's, uh, <clears throat> we're also finally starting to uh, fold into some rain here, which is very much needed. So that'll squash that for me as well.
3: Right, right. Yeah, it's raining here this week, so I don't think I'm going to get any in. But it's all about just putting on the right clothes. It doesn't
2: matter how cold it is. Yeah, you know, and the game has been awful as of late, but uh, I'll, I'll get it back. I'm just happy to be playing in January. I don't care how bad it is. Well, I mean, that's my walk, you know, basically. So I'm not a gym guy, but uh, I I do walk and carry my bag. Right. And uh, so. Has has Moy been playing at all, your wife? Uh, She's starting to play again. Yeah, she's recovered um, from her foot surgery that she had in early March last year. It's taken a while, but um, she's finally starting to play again, too. A lot less as well.
3: See, Jeff and I could do this whole podcast on golf, but we better uh, – yeah,
2: I think we, we could. Guys, <laughs> we, I know we
3: could. <laughs> We've played enough rounds together that I know we can talk golf for hours. Um, but let's switch on to music. Sure. Uh, so you're in San Francisco, and that's where you grew up. Can you just uh, give me a, a brief – how did you get started? What's your musical upbringing and your background?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I basically just started by ear at a very young age. I want to say my earliest memories would be about four years old. Um I did grow up in a you know early on <clears throat> uh, more I guess active Catholic household where my parents used to take me to church and I'm saying that was about four and I would basically uh, I guess came home and the piano was in the house there and I just uh, started playing what I heard the organist playing so I was just mimicking that but I was able to play with two hands figure it out and wow and um, I know I'm. I'm At the time, my mother did have some picture of me uh, on the piano at about 18 months with the most goofiest look on my face, but (laughs) both hands on the keys going.
3: (laughs) So it was just that natural? Your ear was that good? You could just hear it and play it back right away?
2: Yeah, basically, I guess. That's how it kind of started. And then uh, by age seven, um, I jumped into formal lessons and... And, and more in the classical realm and continue with that for a bunch of years until I probably stopped doing that when I was about 18 ish or so. But I was also playing in the high school jazz band from 13 on. Um, so I mean, basically what happened was it's uh <clears throat> if I want to look at it, I guess starting by year, but I always wanted, I wanted to be able to read music. Obviously that's why I was studying lessons and stuff. And so I've tried to incorporate both, which um, over the years, you know, obviously you had to do a lot of reading cause I was, basically sight reading gigs all the time you you walk in here's a bunch of charts here you go and you know and then also at the same time it's very improvisational so it comes full circle back to the more you know doing it by ear so to speak you know
3: when you were when you were 13 and you started getting into jazz who were some of the, the the piano players who stuck out to you right away
2: well, I mean, it was, uh, I was kind of more introduced into, like, uh, you know, the big band era. So it wasn't really specifically, like, here's his pianist. But at the same time, I was also then finally, you know, I was handed, you know, tapes of a bunch of different, all you know, from early on all the way up to, like, you know, the, uh, the like the Miles period with Herbie and stuff and, and Corea and so, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> And then, I mean, at that time, I just basically, I mean, this is, the influences ran the gamut. I mean, I'm probably sure I share a lot of the same favors with a lot of folks, you know.
3: Right. So when did you then, for lack of a better term, when did you turn pro? When did you start playing pro gigs?
2: Actually, the same, very same year in 13. It was I wouldn't say pro gigs, but I mean, it was, we had a good uh, drummer and bass player in the high school band, and I was a freshman, um, which they didn't allow a freshman, I guess, into the jazz band, but I got in somehow. Um so the band director started hiring us to uh, like do weddings and casuals with him. <laughs> so besides being a great experience, I thought maybe possibly he was able to make some more bucks for himself that way, which I don't blame him. <laughs> right on a teacher <laughs> salary for sure. No, but but we did. You know, he was paying us. You know, it was kind of cool. I was going, wow, oh, I'm getting having fun and, and uh, getting to get paid for it. And so forth so each year like you know 13 through high school and it was more and more and you know each year had a little more gigs more gigs more gigs and then by basically like 18 um kind of jumped into the san francisco scene or tried to um via you know jam sessions and blah 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 and and then just basically just continued on until by 21 it was basically nothing but music and word of mouth kept me busy and hopefully reputation i guess was, was good enough to keep me going and is everything at that point jazz as far as the gigs you are playing most of it i mean actually um at the i guess i want to say when i was i think i was 20 at the time and maybe turned 21 while on the road but I, a friend of mine was uh <clears throat> was in the uh in vogue um getting ready to do their first uh, tour and next thing he calls me up and he says oh by the way you got a you got an audition tomorrow and i'm like what <laughs> <You> know, So, <laughs> did you know who in vogue were oh i mean i knew who they were but i mean they were they were brand brand new i mean it was their right. first record and it was their first tour it was on the mc hammer uh, um, hammer don't hurt him tour and so <laughs> you know I, I right away had to get like you know buy a sampler and this and that and it was like okay you know um, but I went into this audition and I'm in. I'm thinking, I don't know what to expect. And I walk in and there's like 17 keyboard players all holding their backs <laughs> and I'm like, oh boy, you know, and, and you got um, the gig. I ended up getting the gig. I was quite, kind of shocked, but, um, but I, I was always, that was my upbringing, which my back to my high school band director kind of, that was my training was, in, I, I didn't really understand about being in a band. I just thought, oh, I'm supposed to be able to be a freelance and, you know, play with anybody I can, any style you can, so try to be versed in all of it. And that was, right. that was kind of that was kind of like my goal.
3: Well, the wedding I, gigs I, is a great way to do it. I mean, I did a ton of those. And the thing, you know, it's not the most glamorous gig in the world, but I learned
2: every style by playing the wedding gigs. No, no, no. And I agree. And it was, like I said, it was just all, all that stuff kind of added up into, you know, what eventually became me, you know? Yeah.
3: And then, so not, when you start playing jazz, you're in in San, in San Francisco, and you hook up with Dave Ellis. Now, was that a long time gig for you at that point? Had you been doing that for a while,
2: with him or or just jazz no, in general? With with Dave, did you play for, with him for a while? I don't really know the backstory. It was actually not that long. It was um, it was like a couple year period, and then he kind of at the time uh, you know wanted to, to just uh, he went a different direction, and so the band kind of. Uh, just kind of cut off at that point, you know. I, I do remember Dave back because we were in opposing jazz bands in and, and the high school, and, you know, all the, the competitions and all that stuff. And so I'd be seeing, like, Dave Ellis. It'd be Kenny Brooks. And I'd see who else Ben Ball. I mean, there's all all these cats that were, you know, that came up through that, that system, you know. Right. So it was all part of the same generation, and then it was really cool. Then it's like, oh, we're all, we're all working musicians now, you know. And then so –
3: and, and his, Dave was kind of your gateway into Grateful Dead world because he was playing with Rat Dog, and that's kind of how you came
2: into the chair, correct? Yeah, that was exactly how I came in.
3: <laughs> when you got to this point, so how old are you when that happened? That's 97, right? No, no, uh, more earlier than that.
2: No, it was, it was 97. It was 97. Um, how so old are you? Uh, well, we're both uh, the same age. I'm 52 now, so I'm right. terrible at math, but I guess I would have probably been uh, like, I don't know, 27, 28. Yeah. yeah,
3: we should both be able to do this. We're only two weeks apart in age, and we're both really bad at math. Apparently, well, we're both over fifty now. Let's yeah, it you know. going <laughs> um So, when you come in, are you from? You're not. You're not familiar with the Grateful Dead at all. At that point, are you?
2: I mean, obviously knew no of them. I just didn't. I didn't know in song one. I didn't. Had I no clue. I mean, uh, I had pro- I, probably heard like Touch of Grey on the radio, not knowing. But I mean, just. Um, <clears throat> but no, that was in completely different. Uh, world so to speak and it was kind of weird too because like you know I, I was very busy in the jazz so i was basically working seven days a week with all different kinds of uh, you know ensembles and but it seemed like at the time i remember like hearing some of the older cats like ah oh, grateful dead like you know stay away from it you know <laughs> and which when, when finally getting into it i was like why would somebody tell me that you know right do you remember the first what you what, what the first thing you heard of the great i mean dead the, <clears throat> the way the first thing i heard was when i went up to bob's house, basically. And that was the start of it, which, you know, and there was not really, you know, Grateful Dead in the repertoire so much. It was just maybe a couple of the Bob tunes.
0: Right.
2: Uh, a lot of blues-based stuff in the beginning. Um, and then it was, I remember it was uh, with Jay Jay Lane and myself who we were talking, and it would be really cool. I like to start incorporating some of these gems, you know. And I think I think it was uh, Sailor Saint was the very first thing that we brought in with the, um, into rat dog at the time as far as like more of a you know bigger epic piece or right. pieces and and so from that point it was like we started you know, we decided it's like hey let's, let's let's start filtering more and more of this stuff in so then i was given like the whole catalog and and started listening a bunch and started making charts and all and everything and it was just like man what what um listening experience there was so much stuff there and I was just kept how diverse it was and it was just like it was blowing my mind I was going Jesus Christ I mean these guys are like all over the map stylistically but it's all brilliant you know
3: is that what really drew you into it was how how different it was stylistically or was it the songwriting the improv
2: all of it I was just like you know you know it was just all of it encompassed and it was just like it really was you know and then didn't realize its existence, you know, until I got into it. And then, like I said, in, in doing chart after chart after chart. Now, you know, I got this giant, you know, book. <laughs> so, and it, it, but it was good to put in that work. Cause I, that's what I needed to do, you know? Right. What, um, who who gave you the music? Did you were you getting it like straight from the
3: source, straight from the Grateful Dead, pristine recordings? Mm-hmm. And was it all live stuff that you were learning from, or was it
2: albums that you were learning from? Both, you know. So I mean, they're, they're all you know, I was obviously you know via CDs at the time, but it was the, basically it was it was all you know the Dick's Picks and, the, and all the stuff and all the studio records. So I was kind of given the, like here's a box of all of it, learn it.
3: So <laughs>
2: and wow. uh, you know, I was still learning, you know.
3: Right, of course, we always. Love- the Dead is so steeped in improv, and you are you're, you're coming from an improvisational background, you know, playing in the jazz situations. But this has got to be a little bit different because it's a little bit more of a rock idiom when you come into it. So, did you have to approach improvising any differently? Um, a because of the idiom, and B because it might be a little bit less traditional of an instrumentation that you're
2: used to. Well, I mean, first off, no matter what you're doing, you got you got to serve the music for what it is. So it's uh, and being an improviser, you, you got to adapt. So I think um, what I did find was, you know, because in the jazz world, you know, you're using a lot of like substitute chord changes and maybe just a little more try to be hit that way or this or that. And you know, I don't want to say tricks, but I'm saying, but there are you know ways of looking at things. But when you get into like a diatonic thing, where it's like a one, you know, a one chord jam, and it may just be a triad, <laughs> you know, right. it's like, oh, okay, what the hell do I do with this now? You know, it's it's it's, it's a wake up call, you know. So it's like you can't do like, oh, I can't do this little trick I know, or this or that, you know. So it's because it doesn't fit musically with what's going right. on, right? I mean, so you just got to respond. It's just, and it's a conversation. I mean, but that's and that's very, you know, symbiotic with. Just improvisation in general. It's all a conversation. you know you're listening, talking to each other, and you know, and sometimes Did, you don't make the right guesses, you know, so you know but that's but that's the
3: beauty, of, especially with this music. You can do that in this music. We can go for it, and it's it's okay to make a mistake. Is, I feel it's okay to make a mistake if you're really going for it and trying something
2: new. Sure, but the mistakes also turn into the magic, you know, and I mean, I'm quite often asked, like, you know, do I have any favorite Grateful Dead songs that, you know, that I like to play, you know, and it's like, you it really is like a, But my blanket answer is usually really, it's not really, because, you know, even though, you know, <clears throat> there's some obviously great stuff to play, it's all great, you know, but when you look at a set list, you might look at something and go, hmm, that looks like a little bit of a mellow point, you know, in, in the set, and um, but I never second guess it because you never know what's going to come out of it. And All of a sudden that might be the, the very best point of the show, you know, so just always try to keep that open mind.
3: Right. So you, you talked about like playing on a one chord jam and, you know, just having a triad to work with and how can I utilize these three notes and still make it interesting for myself and for the audience? Uh, is that a big change for you having to change your, your, your not? I don't want to say your style, but your approach to that part of the improvisation
2: no not really it's just it's just more or less understanding um uh, i think what i've learned over the years too and there's a lot of it's to do with you know bob was always big on talking about like broad strokes you know um especially when you're playing like you know large arenas or stadiums and all that stuff and you know what's what's going to transcend to the audience you know and if you're having these flurries of notes or this or that you know it doesn't always there's times for it you know other times right. it just might be that one choice note, you know, and it's just, um, and 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 also, you know, harkening back to when I was younger and trying to learn, grown as growing through the music, um, you know, about taking your time, you know, and and just making it mean. So when you make make it, you know, mean something when you play it.
3: Right, right. You mentioned the playing in a big room as a drummer. I was taught, you know, like. With the snare drum, you have all these little grace notes that you might play, and your your left hand buzzing on the snare between the backbeat. Sure.
2: If the guy in the last row isn't going to hear it, is it worth playing it? Just uh, keep it simple, ex- well, you know. Uh, exactly, you know. And then finally you find sometimes when by doing that, and everybody, you know, so now you have like a six piece band that's actually playing as as one. You know, so everybody's kinda got, got their part in there in a sense, even if it, if it's an improvised part or you might focus on it and then you repeat that part, or whatever, and it's just like and that becomes this giant, you know, funky, you know, hard hitting machine, you know, or right. a very soft, beautiful, you know, machine. It's um
3: as long as we're talking about the musical approach, I'm gonna skip around on my notes a little bit. Mm-hmm. When you play um when you were playing jazz, you were probably playing with upright and electric players, if I would have to guess. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, when you come into the Dead World, uh, still kind of the same thing with Rat Dog because Wasserman was playing upright a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I, guess where, I guess where I'm going with this is then with, with all the bands with Phil and with O'Teal, they're playing a six-string bass by and large. Does that have mm-hmm. to do you, do you have to change the way you play, specifically your left hand, your, your your low end hand? Do you have to change the way you play or just be more aware because you have a bass with more strings? No, I mean, I, I, try, I try to,
2: you know, it, I do try to stay out of the bass range too, but I also sometimes it, it, it's like a, as a double support, I'll be down there. It just varies. Um, but I've always felt it very natural, and, you know, it was never, to me, never an issue. When I don't feel like I was stepping on anybody or anybody was stepping on me or anything like that. Um, it's just, I don't know, just been very natural, of both Phil and O'Til, and basically everybody else I've been had the luxury of playing with, you know.
3: This, this might be a tough question to answer, but when I'm on stage and I'm improvising, obviously we're listening to everybody on the stage. But... At certain times, there's someone who I have to listen to first, you know, whether sure. it's the, whether it's the bass player or in my case, a lot of times it's Dino just to make sure we're not right. ste- stepping on each other. Is there
2: some place on stage that you gravitate to first? Um, I guess if we're, if we're all just playing, i i I'm listening to all at, at once. Basically, I like to, I like to hear it that way, think of it that way and just really be used. Big eared as possible. I mean, but obviously, when you you know when a vocal comes in, boom, you're on that. Um, if, if there's a solo comes in, um, or somebody else soloing, you're on that. You know, so it's you know you're constantly bouncing. To me, I'm, I mean, I'm bouncing around. Um, so yeah. just kind of you know just always waiting to be fed something and try to and, and all have the conversation and throw it back in a different way or support or you know like hey, well, I'm saying this, you know, and you know and. Yeah. And and other people are doing it too, so it's just like you just you know you're responding all the all the time. Just
3: that's a theme that comes up for in every one of these interviews. As far as improvising goes, people you got to have big ears. Oh yeah, got to listen to everybody who's on stage. Even if as a drummer, I have to listen to the bass player first. Sometimes you still got to
2: listen to everybody else at the same time. Exactly. You know, no one to, to chime in, no one to, to stay out of the way. Um, there's often times where I'm just going to lift my hands off the keys, you know, and just yep. let – and not play.
3: Yeah, enough is being said. Where you don't necessarily have to put the notes in. You know, Miles used to say –
2: That's it, space is, you know, it's, it's the is right, between. Space you words. know <laughs> – <laughs>
3: Um, I want to go back to the dead for a minute. So you start listening to it. I'm assuming if you're listening to Dick's Picks and, uh, and the albums, you're listening to stuff from all the different eras. So you're listening to a lot of different keyboard players, as you well mm-hmm. know. Was there any one particular of them that grabbed you first or that really sticks out? Maybe I don't want to say your favorite because that's a bad thing to have to
2: pigeonhole. No, I mean, it's just, uh, I don't want to say, you know, again, I'm, I'm a Libra here, so he's well, usually very neutral, but all of them obviously just had – Different approaches and, and, and just in obviously different generations and, and years of being in the band and what was happening. Um, I I took into account all of it, you know, and see their what their approaches were, you know, and so maybe I might depending on if you're if you're playing a certain tune, you might want to approach it a little different, you know, back to what it was in the pig pen era or something like that, you know. But I'm still gonna be myself. I can't, you know, i have never. One, I want to be like a direct copy of somebody. No, of course. that's not what it's, what it's about. You know, you find what you like, you incorporate that into your own thing, and you develop your own voice out of that, and and then, ex, you know, expand upon it.
3: So let's go through them real quick, if you don't mind, then. Just, it can even be one word, just what you might have taken from listening, f- from Pigpen's playing, what might what, have what influenced you, or even just an emotional thing.
2: Well, <clears throat> just obviously it was more stylistically and what, you know, the instrumentation being used with the B3 or the, or the, uh, the Farfisa, you know um, just, just how, you know, it, was, it had that sixties sound, you know, and it was just kind of like, oh, okay. You know, you know just, um, I don't know if I can really explain this the best way here. Okay. Then let's move on. Keith. Uh, I, I like, you know, you used to, you used to do the, like these, these low melodic, piano parts against what the voice you know, with the single line stuff that was going on between Jerry and Bob and you know and he also he had some groove stuff in there that was really cool you know Um, and same with like his moving on to Brent I mean it was you know that he was just such a fantastic B3 player it was just like whoa you know I wish I could do that you know (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, you do. I mean, you, you play organ now, obviously. When you when you came in, had you played organ growing up or were you strictly a piano
2: player? Piano. I had no idea. And that was when I first basically, I want to say it was the 2002 other uh, one slash to the dead. Um, basically, I was told you're going to be playing um, a lot of B3. And I was like, okay, I've never touched it in my life. So, <laughs> I mean, I had the organ modules, which I hated. Um you know this the single manual and all that digital and i just i was like this is awful but once i did actually sat on the on the uh, on the b3 itself uh I, I don't know i just felt a really natural connection to it um and just to really enjoyed and, and 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 learning how to do it and messing with the drawbars to understand like wh- okay what's going on here you know i wish i had it grown up but just i just didn't so i was very much a late bloomer to that but oddly enough now i've i've had for Quite many years now. Um, um, Brent's actual B three in my rig,
3: right? And and uh, you you and Brent also share a birthday.
2: We do. So there's
3: kind of a, a a kindred spirit there. Does does that when you play that organ, can you feel it? Is there a spiritual connection to it because of you and Brent, or just because of where that organ
2: had been before you played it? I think probably both. But I'm saying, but definitely when I first sat on that particular that particular one, it had its own unique growl to it i want to say because i was using a different one earlier than that um a little more cleaner sound uh, it was a brent spare or something um but once i got onto that one it was like okay you know, <laughs> was, uh, i still love, i still love playing that organ to this day i mean it's it's uh, it's got its, its unique growl to it and and um some and drive it's
3: that tour when you started playing in 2002, is that the tour where you and Baracko are sharing the seat?
2: Yes. And we actually, I think we did it, it. was 2002 and three together. Right. So is that the first time you've ever played with two keyboard players? Uh. Well, yes, in that facet, I was saying, like, when I did the en Vogue thing, it was four keyboard players and a, and a drummer, so it was like, Right, you
3: know, but that's all, that's synth-based music. That's a whole Right, it was samples,
2: game. samples and all right. that stuff, you know. You're probably going to a like, click
3: for that, too, I would imagine.
2: Um, well, the drummer probably had the click, and then he yeah. was playing electronic drums, too. So, it was, so uh, this is your first organic,
3: if, if I could use that term, your organic situation where you're playing with two keyboard players. How does that change things for you?
2: Well, it's once again. It's you know, you got to listen and say, okay, where do I belong and where don't I belong? You know, and and there's a lot of times, and you know, became more often to where it's like I would just get up and walk off. You know, let Rob have it, and then he would do the same. You know, and then we would play together. You know, so so it wasn't this big sound all the time. You know, right? Were you you strictly on organ? No, no. All of us switched around. I mean, we we had, um, you know, which is basically, you know, the same rigs I think we had when you know, it was a piano, bass, and then we had the organ, and then you had the backside, had the like the rose and the Clav and so forth. And
3: um, Yeah, let's talk about that. So first of all, you're like one of the luckiest keyboard players in the world because by and large you get to have a grand piano with you everywhere you go. Am
2: I right? Uh, yes, and we've actually over the, uh, the last uh, – I'm going to say since like 2016-ish or so, um, switched over from an actual grand piano to it's, to it's a, it's called the Yamaha Avant, which is a, it's a digital piano, but it has hammers in it, which actually feels like a real piano, which is great for one, because I always hated playing digital um, instruments. Right. And, um, but the benefit's been like, so rather than having like all these microphones and pickups in there and then the piano becoming, you know, take, for one, taking up a bunch of channels on the board, also being a giant pickup on stage itself, uh, to now going to, you know, just stereo out and, you know, no bleeding, no needing to have it tuned. Um,
3: right. They're very much no. that,
2: the, 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 you know, there's, there's good piano tuners out there and not so good ones. And the not so good ones can actually like, you know, if it's right before a gig, all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, what'd you do? Like, you took yeah. the voice out of it, like, you know.
3: And, and you're using the local guy. I mean, on all of those, you move from town to town. You just yes. use the local piano
2: tuner, so. Yep.
3: Well, I didn't realize you'd switch. That's really cool. Well, no, it's uh... been,
2: you'll see it. It's it's, it's short, it's like it's like four feet long or whatever. It was first used on the uh, the Fallon shows where it was brought out because it was such a small stage plot that, you know, in, in, in lieu of playing the... Um, the Kurzweil, you know, kind of regular 88 key one, I had, it was shortly before that I had met Chikoria, and we were talking, and obviously he also had toured with uh, The Dead with Miles Davis, so we were talking gear and all this stuff, and then and uh, he asked me what I was playing, and I told him I had a 7-foot the C 7 going, and he's like, Oh, and, I, and he mentioned about, um, I said, do you got any other suggestions? You know, if it's like, he's like, oh, you got to check out this savant, you know, but it never came up until the Fallon show. And then I, and, uh, I asked about getting that for the show and it worked out. And that basically even um, right after that performance, uh, I mean, we're out in the trailers and stuff. And I was talking with Mickey and he actually made a comment. He's like, he's like, hmm the day of the giant piano might just be over. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, I was like, okay, I'm not opposed, you know? And then, um, man, I just think it was, it's been a really, uh, it's been a, a, a blessed move for us. What other gear would you have in your,
3: let's, let's, let's go with dead and company. Cause that's the most recent thing you're doing right now. You'd have the piano and the B3
2: and what else? Um, then I had my Fender Rhodes, um, and actually, uh, <clears throat> I had an old clavinet that belonged to the Jerry Garcia band that Steve Parrish had, uh, um, laid on me. Um, and then, um, haven't, I mean, I haven't really switched anything except for, uh, um, cause that the claps, you know, it takes a beating on the road and it was, you know, I don't want to be damaged there. And then, uh, more recently this company called the vintage vibe, um, been connected with them and uh, been switched over to their roads piano and also their clavinet slash it was called vibonet um which they're definitely they're all very well crafted and uh, very road worthy so i've been been proudly using those i mean i still got my regular fender roads now i got a couple of them actually uh, i got a few of them actually i should say
3: yeah, they're yeah. fragile
2: for the road for sure. Morocco yeah,
3: has trouble with his all the time.
2: Yeah, you know, and I got it now another clav. I've um, gotten been handed off some other vintage instruments that are going to need repairs. But I'm, mean, you know, just not a collector, but just here's a question. To, you know. I've, I've
3: never asked you this: How many Leslies are on stage when you're in Dead and Company? Uh, it's just
2: just the one. Really. Yep, I know Such there used to be a lot more. Um, a lot more. <laughs> I think there used to be 11 on stage at, at any given time back right. in, the, in the in the big stages. Uh, when we did The Dead, though, uh, f- f- there was a, uh, Phil who would have one next to him, and there would also be one on the other side, whether it was Jimmy or Warren. I believe there was another one sitting over there, too.
3: Um, I've noticed when I watch you play with, and these things, you're talking about all the different equipment and you, you switch back and forth a lot within a song, which I think is beautiful because it lends different textures, textures to different sections of the song. Right. Are, are you, are you given the freedom to decide what to use on a particular song or on a particular oh, yeah, no, it's, it's
2: all up to me. And then there, and there are, is times when, um, you know, I'll switch it up where it's like, I would normally play organ on this song, but it's like, let's see what piano can do you know today, which has actually also been interesting with the Wolf brothers because, I kind of taken it upon myself to where it's um, I kind of deem that as like more of an an acoustic ensemble. So I'm just trying everything on piano only.
3: Right. Are you are are you free is I don't know how to put this. Um, Is there one setting with all the different groups that you have a little bit more freedom than another one? or Are you just free to do your thing always?
2: I think I'm fairly free to do my thing always, but I, th- I think there's just, maybe it's in, um, maybe on side projects where it's just like a four-piece band, if we got like the Wingman or like Kim Monk Project or something like that to where it's, it's you know, it might be a little bit more jam, you know, in, uh, I don't know, put it like, you know, a lot more jamming maybe. Um, right. And taking, you know, but I am going to say taking it out because we do that with, the, uh, with Dead & Company or any of the bigger bands, of so just to, that you have more players in there, so I guess you got to be more cognizant of more players. Um, but in the side projects, like I've really gravitated more towards uh, that's Fender Rhodes based for me, you know? So rather than playing a, a, a digital keyboard for piano sound or whatever, I, you know, I, I really like the, the Fender Rhodes feel and sound for the side projects, you know? So
3: do you go through phases where you're digging on one instrument more than another, just in general and you're, whether it's with the dead Related stuff, just in general, where you're really jazzed on the roads right now. But now I'm really digging on the organ.
2: No, no, not really. Just kind of, you know, I let the music decide where I want to be. Love it, love it. All right, my friend. Before I let you go,
3: we got to do this. <laughs> this is the lightning round. You I don't get I,
2: to. I don't win anything, right? It's like fair fairity.
3: <laughs> no, you do not win a thing. <laughs> um, I'll buy the next round of golf. How about that? Here you go. Um not if you come right. to visit me, you know. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Jeff's always very gracious to take me to his golf course and play whenever I'm in San Francisco, and we have a great time and I always appreciate it. Um you ready? I hope. <laughs> Studio recordings or live recordings? Live recordings. Favorite dead album.
2: Oh God. <laughs> Too many. Sorry. Oh, then you're never going to Actually, you know that. what I'm about, to say? I'm, about to say, I'm about to say? I'll say my, I think my favorite studio dead album is um, Blues For Uh You're going to hate this one. Your favorite non-grateful dead album? Oh. Ooh. Quadrophenia.
3: All right.
2: Favorite color? Black. Surprise, <laughs> folks. <Dang. laughs> For your first job. I worked in a woman's... Clothes warehouse. Leading it's up into just- high school for a summer, it was a friend of my father's that was like the uh, was the manager of the company there, and uh, it was yeah, it was called Corret or something, and he got me a summer job. And basically it started off, I had to like my first gig and it was probably like a 20,000 square foot warehouse. I had to sweep the entire warehouse. It's <laughs> my first job. And then I became a clothes packer actually by the end of it. And um, I became a, it was a really good packer. And in fact, the, I was out, Outpacking all the workers there they were getting all pissed off and me it was like don't stop showing us up because now you're making us happen to work you know well it's it's good to know you have something to fall back on and i'll say my second job uh, was I uh, worked under the table at a local deli which still exists to this day it was the first one that had the submarine sandwiches <laughs> and, and my next gut job was selling golf clubs for a few years and that, and that was the last job i ever had that's awesome selling golf clubs in a golf shop yep Nice. Uh, favorite venue to play? Oh, that's another tough one. Um, I'm going to say outdoor. It would have to probably be Red Rocks of the Gorge. Um, I don't know. It's always been partial to the Madison Square Garden, too, because the song remains the same as a kid. Um, right. So.
3: Those are good ones.
2: Yeah. Uh, best city for a day off? Um, anywhere there's a great golf course nearby. Well that was my next question. Favorite golf course? Anywhere it's a good city nearby.
3: <laughs> That's perfect. The one that is open, the one that is closest to me. You that is my favorite it. golf course. Your first car.
2: Uh was a VW um Beetle. What year? Uh first one I have is a seventy-four, which um I only had for a couple of years, and then I ended up getting a very cherry um, '67 that was all stock German parts. And uh, I used to love that car. It was slammed to the ground. I got it all painted up. It was like this <laughs> this white mint green kind of pastel, the inside and out. And um, I had that for a few years, and I ended up selling it. I wanted to say in the mid '80s, uh, mid mid yeah mid '80s uh, for like three grand. And I bought oh, a and I bought a coregam one.
3: I could just see you, it'd be awesome. See you pull up at a golf course on a mint green VW and open up the front to take out your golf clubs. That would oh, be fantastic. The, the car, it was,
2: it was a beautiful, I, that thing was great. I, I love that car. It was, like I said, it was slammed to the ground. You felt like really close to the road and, um, and hell all you had to do was just change the oil every 3000 miles and, and you were all good to go. I, I just uh, ran out of gas the other day in my car because, uh, my float, sensor got screwed up or whatever it showed me I had fifty miles left. The next thing you know, I'm running out of gas and I am on the side of the road. Oh. Serious. Uh, yep. It was I felt so stupid. It got to my mechanic <laughs> and he was like, uh, Jeff, I think you just you were just out of gas. <laughs> I was like, oh, don't tell anybody though.
3: Uh, yeah, you just told millions yeah. of people my <laughs> millions and millions of listeners. Uh, what
2: uh, book you're reading right now. Um, I'm not currently reading a – I'm not having – I don't have one started right now. You know
3: what? I think, I, I think I'm think i going to have to take – first of all, this is par for the course, no golf pun intended. I, I operate the world's slowest lightning round. Um, that's just the way it is. And I'm going to have to take that question out, I think, because – by and large, the majority of musicians, when I ask them, say, uh, "I'm not really reading a book right now."
2: Well, I think everybody's probably like you know the you know doing audio or you know <laughs> listening to podcasts. Right,
3: right there, <laughs> you go. <laughs> um, I won't even ask then if you have any magazine subscriptions. We'll just
2: pass that one over. Well, I'm not by choice. Just in my golf club, I'm automatically I get you know the the golf magazine or whatever.
3: Yep, uh, golf magazine and Golf Digest. I get them. Golf both. Digest, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, when this is
2: all, I think I know the answer to this one,
3: but uh, when this is all over, the first trip you're going to take?
2: Well, hopefully it's going to be on a big, giant tour. We'll see. But uh, if not, I wouldn't mind taking a golf trip either. you You know, the desert, love it down there. I'd
3: imagine you guys need to get to Japan as quickly as you can, too. Uh,
2: I'd love to get back there, too, and get to see uh, my family over there. And uh, I mean, I am slated right now. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. But Fuji Rock, again, was rebooked from last August to this coming August. Um, And uh, who knows what even happens with the Olympics over there. But I do love going to Japan. It's uh, like a second home for me.
3: Fuji Rocks is absolutely
2: 100% the coolest festival I've ever been to. It is a great great one. They know how to do it over there, man. They certainly do. Even if it's small gigs, they know how to do it. You know? Yeah. They, they make you so comfortable. And it's like, and then my favorite thing is like the gig start at 6 p.m. and I'm done by 9. Right. The promoter <laughs> takes you out to eat. And, you know, it's like, how good can that be?
3: The thing that blew me away most about Fuji Rock, so many, th- for, that was my first time in Japan. and But the, the thing that blew me away more than anything was how respectful the music fans were of their surroundings. I mean, there was not a piece of trash on the ground.
2: No, that's just editing. them as a culture. It's like all the ah, the cities are like that too. And just um,
3: so wonderful, man. Well, I hope you get back over there soon, and you can yeah, see your family. And Moy gets too. to go home. Yep. All right, my friend. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time with me today. I hope you uh, hope you enjoyed it. I know the people out there will get a big a lot of enjoyment out of listening to what you have to say so
2: no, here's the hoping but i'm glad to be a part of it thanks for having me aboard and uh, hopefully we'll get to see your lovely smile in person at some point soon hit the golf course my friend yes well we maybe we won't be smiling so much out there <laughs>
3: <laughs> i always smile on a golf course oh, i don't care how bad yeah, but, play. Uh,
2: what's going on underneath the breath that's
3: the... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a different story right? <laughs> all right thank you my friend stay safe and be well okay bro you as well talk to all you right, soon. take care okay That brings us to the end of another episode. I would like to thank Jeff Comenti and Scott Cooper for taking the time to be here. And I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats for all of their support. If you enjoyed the show and want to contribute to the cause, please consider a subscription at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays or make a one-time contribution at paypal.me forward slash the music plays any love is much appreciated as we get this show off the ground the music plays the band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team brothers lazaroff here in st louis missouri you can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com the opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of dso drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. So today was a twofer, as I released multiple episodes. Right now, you can check out episode 8, featuring an amazing conversation with Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams. I will be back in two weeks on March 25th with episode 9. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We need to get live music back out there as quickly as possible, and we need everyone's help in making that happen. Thanks for being here.
4: People join in-